Hi there, my name is Alex Faust and you're listening to Conversations at the Edge. Each week we meet with a top business thought leader to learn what they think we should be prioritizing to build better businesses, positively impact our communities, and scale up. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, depending on what part of the world you are joining us from. My name is Alex Faust, your host of Conversations at the Edge. And I'm very excited to be joined today by Tom Searcy, who's back for another episode of Conversations at the Edge. And if you're not familiar with Tom, he's a nationally recognized speaker, author, and the foremost expert in large account sales. So I'm really excited to dig into that with Tom today and talk about selling, closing deals faster, with more confidence. Um, so Tom, welcome to Conversations at the Edge. And where are you calling in from today? Uh, Indianapolis. Alex, good to see you again. Thank uh, so I'd love to start off with what you're seeing in the environment today. Is sales all that different than it was, say, two or three years ago? Obviously, we have the rise of AI. Um, the markets are shifting. So I'm curious kind of what you're seeing and, and how you're seeing sales differ or not in, in the market today. Okay. So what's changed in the last two to three years? I mean, I could go through an enormous list, I, but um, I'm going to talk about a couple ones that I didn't see coming. The first one was communications. Um, almost everything has moved away from, say, phone and face, you know, getting out. You're you're knocking on the door and getting there to either Zoom or you know you're going to be on email or text. If you're younger than 40 and who's out there selling professionally, you're on text. You know, I and uh, when I ask uh, sales professionals to make phone calls. They look at me like I've lost my mind if they're under 40 because their answer is, I don't want to interrupt anybody. And I'm like, you're trying to sell something, but it works. So the communication systems have dramatically changed. The second thing is the budget. The budget focus has become primary. And I believe it's because of the economic uh, situation that we're in right now. People are looking for, the buyers are looking for budget over incremental improvement. And they want to hit their budget or less even though you can demonstrate an improvement over what they've got right now. So you have to be closer to the budget on smaller and mid-sized sales. And that's uh, those are the things I've seen out in the marketplace. I would say, um, of course, we always want to get up uh, to the highest level of actual decision maker. If it's possible, that's gone even higher. Our frontline and middle level managers, no matter what you're proposing, if it's any level of significance, they have to kick it up. And we know that lots of them say, I'm the decision maker, right? I'd say the other thing, and I don't think, I think this happened since COVID and, or, or the pandemic or whatever you want to call it, but has gotten because of the economic situation, even more so that's flexible contracts. People want flexibility in their, uh, in their contracts. And from that, um, it puts a lot of responsibility on they're transferring their risk from the buyer to the seller by moving that flexibility of contract. And that's uh, a little tough. Um, the big companies are really working right now. And you can see it on the macro levels of the layoffs and all the things that we're seeing and that you hear about from the big companies that are out there. But people are trying to establish what's the labor expense versus the labor delivery and whether there should be a kind of a, a hollowing out of middle-level management. And when that happens, it's good for us and it's bad for us. It's good for us because our blockers maybe are moving away. It's bad for us because of all the relationships we've been developing are now, they're gone. Unless they go to uh, unless they go to a place that we want to go sell to again and we had a positive relationship, now I've expanded. But for the most part, those are, I would say, the five 
I guess that's five biggest things that I uh, believe I've seen change in the last two to three years. So based on that, you know, what are some of the skills that you're encouraging salespeople and sales organizations to build up and, you know, be able to stand out or get through some of these blockers that are now in today's distracted environment? It's going to sound a little odd, but we sell into, you know, bigger sales. Salespeople need to be able to tell the future. If you want to distinguish yourself, you're going to give some level of implications of what the world is going to be like. We know as salespeople, we sell the future. The future may be you're not happy right now. The future, you'll be happy. Or you should change over your technology or ideas or whatever. But that idea, if you want to stand out, you tell the future. Let me give a quick example. So um, we're working with company and they are in the circumstance of talking about AI and what does AI mean for the future? And they don't know. I mean, nobody knows. But what they did was they said, I can give a white paper and then a presentation to each of my prospects or customers that says, here's the way to measure how AI is performing in your company, regardless of platform. How is it increasing efficiency, effectiveness, accuracy, onboarding speeds, and the amount of training that you're going to need? And they just simply listed out and created, I shouldn't say listed out, created a way to present that. And then they said, going forward, these are the thresholds of investment to return that you should be considering. That document foretold a future of measurement, not of which way AI was going to go. It worked very, very well because they were able to enter into a place where they could tell the future and differentiate themselves from everybody else. And in some of the the talks you've given and um, some of your recent work, you're talking about a concept uh, called speed of confidence and how that plays a big role in the speed in which you can actually close business. So I'd love to talk a little bit about what speed of confidence actually means and you know how you're seeing that play a role in, in closing big deals. Well, think of it this way. So speed of confidence is the idea that inside of an organization, they are making a good decision. Now, the way that a lot of people do this is they say, well, we're going to manage your risk by just doing a pilot. And then for the performance of the pilot, then if we do well, we'll forecast a better future. Well, the challenge with that is that you didn't sell the confidence of the product. You simply said, let's go ahead and take a risk and see if it works. For you to establish the speed to confidence, you have to sell past the pilot. You have to say, look, the size of what you're going to do and you need to change is significant. Let's work our way back from what perfection looks like to your current level now. And then we'll talk about what the investment looks like to a uh, overall engagement. Let's set out those thresholds. Now, I know that sounds um, uh, similar to a pilot, but it is less than a pilot because you have to make a significant number. If someone has a $100 million problem and you show up with a half a million dollar pro, uh, solution, you look very much like you're not paying attention. You don't look like an inexpensive decision. They have a $100 million problem. If you want to increase the confidence, you have to be able to demonstrate the straight line from what you're going to do all the way through the end result, not just the 
pilot, let's see how it works. So once they see that, they have a reasonable, it's reasonable for them to say, we want to step off. You know, if, if we're not getting results, we want to step off. The answer is fine, but we have to have a sustained growing relationship from a significant level committed at the end uh, and step off points along the way. And what we see is, is that then that says to someone, I'm not trying and, you know, driving. I mean, how do you get, how do you get confidence if you have a half a million dollar investment into a hundred million dollar prop problem and you're doing five other things that are costing you another $10 million? Well, what you've just said is you become 5% of their concerns, 5% of what they consider when they're looking at doing something. You think it's a big pilot. You're the last thing that they look at on what they're doing every day. You have to become significant to become significant. There has to be an out point and you have to sell to the out point, not sell to the pilot. I guess my, my next question is, you know, in the minds of, um, of the customer or the potential customer, the prospect, how much research should you be doing in advance to like be prepared for these kind of conversations? You know, this is not, a transactional conversation. This seems much deeper. You need to like speak to the future. So what are you suggesting there? Like, are you having people who are experts in industries or I guess I'll just hand it over to you and, and to, to elaborate. Well, for, I, I like to say that the coin of the realm in big sales is information. He or she who has the most information wins. So there is no such thing as too much information. Now, here's how I'm cheating. I'm going to bard.google.com, which is ChatGPT, which is auto chat GPT, whatever search mechanism you want. I like Bard because it's a lot, uh, the recency of the information that it's looking for. And the first thing I do, if it's a large company, is I type in and say, uh, summarize for me the last four um, quarterly earnings meetings. It just summarizes it and I have, I don't have to read through all that. Now I can come back and say, um, summarize uh, the letter from the CEO from that, et cetera. All right. Uh, give me a list of the top five competitors in order of size based on revenue or number of or whatever it is uh, inside of the same industry as the above. Because again, you can roll it forward. So now I have the five uh, content. Then I say, then I write in what are the differentiators in the marketplace of these five competitors. And it may kick out a table. It may provide me information. So provide me a profile of the last three CEOs of this particular company. You don't have to have a publicly traded company if they are already out in the public information and so on. Inside of an hour, I can have a profile of the industry that they're playing in. I can talk about what regulations are anticipated, what technologies are changing, what competitors they have, uh, who's involved in all of that. I can have a brief that is unbelievably impactful. Um, so there, so before, so before, this isn't anybody's surprise, huge amount of time and energy was spent on research and uh, analytics, analysis, and all the rest of that stuff through research uh, resources inside of your company or outside or yourself that never got the level of completeness that working through something like 
um, you know, this, uh, these uh, tools that we're talking about right now. And that's what they are. They're, they're, they're tools. I, I know that everyone is, uh, who's ever seen the Terminator is expecting that Skynet is going to kill everybody. Um, but at least for now on AI, it's a huge tool for salespeople. Um, I'm curious, Tom, if we could talk about speeding up the sales cycle. Um, what are some factors that you're seeing today that are enabling teams to speed up the, the sales cycle rather than get stuck in, you know, the vast confusion of maybe later? The executive sponsor is the key to speed. Now, the executive sponsor and many companies uh, who are, that we teach and we work with get this wrong. The executive sponsor is the person who truly owns the results of the challenge, problem, or opportunity. It, it could be the CEO, COO, CFO, CRO, senior vice president to fill in the blank, whatever it is, but they own the results. They have an urgency to get this completed. All right. So it needs to happen. And the majority of the companies we work with, if a company doesn't need to get uh, the change made in on the road inside of 60 to 90 days, you might as well move on because the speed to sale is so long because they're not motivated to do so. And the third thing is the, you need to have someone who has the authority to sign on the line that is dotted. So your executive sponsor has those three things. When you secure a true executive sponsor, your conversion rate goes up measurably over 50% just by having that person. Even though you go through our system of peer-to-peer selling and stage gate process and metrics measuring and et cetera, just getting to that will increase the speed. Because before that, you're spending all the time and energy climbing the hill. If you have a methodology to get to the top of the hill, which we spend a lot of time working with people is how do I get to the top of the hill first? and then stay there, um, then that speeds things up. Second piece of this, you have to have your peer-to-peer selling methodology and stage gate laid out. We call stage gate, which is really who is talking to whom about what at what phase of the overall sales process. You have to have that laid out with the tools ready. It can't be the salesperson comes in and says, oh, we have XYZ company. Hey, we should put together a strategy of how we're gonna do that. Who should be on that phone call? I think we should bring in Ed and Sue because no, if you have a process that says we have an executive sponsor, you should be able to stage uh, step into stage one, have your tools and your peers ready and be calling the shots to get things done. I'll tell you the third thing. Most people don't necessarily. Before you go, before you yeah. go to the third thing, can you just explain the peer selling process for maybe folks who aren't aren't familiar? Oh, sure. Um, IT people are going to t- talk to IT people because they're going to speak a sp- specific language around IT, and the same thing around operations. And each of those peer to peer says at the buyer's table, there's a group of people that are going to be involved in the buyers. Matter of fact, right now, that measures out between 7 and 11 people will be buying anything that is larger, believe it or not, than $250,000. There will be 7 to 11 people involved. Peer-to-peer says that you've established in advance who your person is that would match up with their person in the sales process. So that's a peer-to-peer matchup. Along those stages, there are specific pieces of information that on our side, we need to have 
from that peer. So the IT person needs to be able to ask four or five questions from his or her peer on the other side and get that information back and needs to present three or four or five pieces of information. Having all of that laid out in advance through a sales process makes it you enormously powerful um, because now instead of following their buying process, you're leading them through a new buying process, which is our selling process. And that is something that you standardize for the organization, not something that you're customizing company to company. Is that correct? Right. You standardize it uh, through the organization. Their leadership always makes tweaks, maybe up to 10% left or right, because large deals require that. But that's what leadership's responsibility is. The rest of it, 90% of it should run like a machine. And we're very... Uh, committed to the idea of running things like a machine. Thank you. So back to number three, sorry for cutting This is the one that people, um, if you want to speed up the sales process, bring the money people to the, to the conversation early. Bring the CFO and the senior vice president to fill in, fill in the blank about money. Most of us want to wait till the end because we don't want to talk about money. You're going to see them later. So why not see them now? include them in the process. They're going to say, what's the price? You're going to say the price of what? They're going to say, well, the price of this, that, or the other thing. Your answer is, I will give you the information along the way and we'll stay connected. At this point, we don't have enough uh, information to give you what the price is and the yield, but I'm not going to keep you in the dark. I want to have conversations with you. You bring the money person early in the conversation. By the time you're at the end of it, the price is no longer... Proposals are not supposed to be Christmas presents and presents. You don't open them up and you're surprised with what's on the inside. By the time you get to a proposal, everyone should be expecting what's in there because we worked on it through there. Bring the money people up front. That way you don't have to see them uh, for the first time at the very end. And that accelerates the sales process. Thank you. So obviously in the economy today, there's quite a bit of uncertainty. Nobody's really sure which way we're going. That's um, right. I'm curious what you're teaching, you know, your clients, sales teams to do differently, to not get sucked into, you know, prospects fear or the uncertainty. We're not sure which way the market's going to go. And so we're not ready to make a decision right now. How you kind of, I, I'm sure it has to do with confidence and, you know, the research things that we've talked about before, but maybe you could just touch on, on that specifically. One of the things that increases the speed and the confidence is the flexibility that you're able to offer. And let me give you an example. Um, so there's a, uh, a large, very, very, very large bank um, that's still going to survive uh, after all of these other things that are out there. They're looking to get someone who cleans all of the, or on a national basis, cleans all of their facilities. They have hundreds of branches around the country. All right. So stick with me. They go into the conversation and the conversation moves very quickly. They, they fill the, uh, they push out the idea that we clean better than anybody else and we're more careful and we have punch lists. Everybody knocks that aside. Their questions were, is our contract flexible enough that if we close a branch or branches, you will reduce down uh, the amount of branches and not charges for those and not increase the amount that you're going to charge us for over here because you decrease the volume. Interesting. Second thing is, 
if there's a change in control, which you and I would call as a merger or uh, that they sell the business or whatever, uh, will you then provide a 90 day ramp down and renegotiate with the new entity? So change of control happens. You're basically out of a contract with a 90 day ramp down, but you still have the opportunity to renegotiate uh, with someone else. These were the issues. They were about contracts and flexibility. And so they didn't change the price. Everything was around terms and conditions. So that's the issue. When I talk about in this marketplace, what is being looked for, flexibility is a big issue around why people are making decisions and moving forward. How do you avoid getting, you know, taken to the house on terms and conditions uh, rather than price? How do you protect, you know, your business and your operations, you know, in, in these kinds of terms and conditions and negotiations? Well, it's going to go back to another story. Uh, I think about one of the companies that we are working with that sells raw materials. All right. And the issue in the conversation of raw materials was interruption. So the interruption of the, the flow of those materials, obviously the pandemic created a history and experience around that. Financial increases that. Supply chain management increases that. And so going back to them and saying, look, on the terms and conditions, you're going to have to stick with the price and the terms and conditions so that I can protect you from your risk. I have to hold on to your inventory for you. We'll, we'll do a consignment inventory, but you want me to have this much here and available to you. You want it packaged in this way and so on and so on. So the terms and conditions, you're setting forth a, a logic base that says you benefit from the ter terms and conditions of let's hold on to this for a longer period of time. Same saying can be said about my previous uh, bank example and other examples that I can give you is you're going back to the idea that an interruption is damaging to you, Mr. Customer. And part of what we do in the terms and conditions is avoid an interruption that is painful. So we've only got about three minutes left, Tom. Uh, curious if there's anything, you know, I haven't asked about that you think is important for our community to, to know going into the second half of the year. I think the big issue for the second half of this year will be efficiency, meaning how much are you putting in from your own resources besides your salespeople based upon what you're getting out? It's not just the compensation of the salespeople, but you're probably having a frozen amount of internal resources or maybe even a diminishing rate of resources. So that means that you have to be getting a lot higher leverage. I'm encouraging everyone to look at, at their efficiency, not just their conversion rate, not just uh, the scale of the revenue, but look at all of it because your net yield has a risk of dropping. Thanks for listening to Conversations at the Edge. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please share it with a friend or a teammate who you think would benefit from what we covered. In addition, you can find us on LinkedIn to get all of the updates. Or if you'd like to hear the full conversation, just visit growthinstitute.com forward slash the edge to learn how you can become a member as well. Thanks again and see you next time.